Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me not to the book of Leviticus. Hey, there we go. All right. Wonderful, my people. As we have done over the last number of years, our year sort of begins in September. A lot of our fall ministries and whatnot, we've changed our financial, our fiscal year of these things as the church kind of match uh, the school year. The one thing that hasn't yet switched over is uh, the sermon series that is still going uh, with the calendar year. And so what we've done the last number of years for two Sundays in September as we sort of kick things off is we have previewed the next year's theme. And so this year in the book of Leviticus, we have looked at gospel purity remaining deeply rooted in Jesus. And I hope, all kidding aside, that it has been a blessing to you to be able to see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all of Scripture and certainly in the book of Leviticus, in the feasts and festivals that we are looking at currently, going back to the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, the sacrifices and the idea that he is uh, the unique and great high priest. And we'll look at that in a little more detail again later on this morning uh, from the priestly line, the book of the Levites, the Leviticus. So I hope it has been helpful. But as we look then, the rest of this calendar year, we'll finish off the book of Leviticus. And our goal next year is to start into the book of Hebrews. And that was sort of always the plan. And I'm not sure that you can rightly look at the book of Hebrews without having a good understanding and knowledge of the book of Leviticus, because the book of Hebrews makes great reference to the book of Leviticus and all of the feasts and festivals and sacrifices and the legal code and all of these things from the nation of Israel. And so we're looking forward to the book of Hebrews. And there our theme will be gospel fulfillment, maintaining an upward focus. We want to look at God and his glory and really the theme of the book of Hebrews, it's, it's almost a sermon outline as opposed to a letter, although those uh, functions or types of a letter there, is the idea that Jesus is superior. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. He's superior to the sacrificial system. He's superior to everything that the Jewish readers of the letter would be tempted to go back to. And so what I want to do then is take your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And this morning, in the time that we have left remaining, I want to look at Christ exalted as our Messiah, as the Chosen One. There are a number of royal psalms in the Psalter, one of which we read as we started our liturgy this morning, Psalm 2. Psalm 110 is another one of those, quoted quite frequently in the book of Hebrews, especially verses 1 and 4. And so I thought it appropriate to walk through Psalm 110 together with you this morning. And look at this messianic psalm, this psalm that is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So what we want to talk about then this morning, if I had to put a theme on it, is the idea of perfection. So if you're perfect here this morning, you are dismissed. Go get some corn, get a hot dog. Alright, you're welcome Tom. Just try to condescend to the rest of us, little people. And uh, remind us of the gap that exists between you and us. We do want to talk about perfection. Now, perfection's an interesting thing, to be sure. We could say today is a perfect day. We've said that, even this morning. What a perfect day. It's a perfect day for Church of the Farm. 
Now, of course, I suppose there's a few things we could change if we really wanted to get perfection, but it's, it's a sort of a nomenclature we use, a sort of a colloquialism. Hey, it's a perfect day. We might say, oh, that was a perfect meal. What a meal that was. Man, that was just perfect. And again, we might not say that it was perfect, perfect, but we, we mean it's, it's close to perfection. Man, that was, that was excellent is kind of what we are sort of getting at. But there is the idea of perfection, and what I want to kind of steer our thinking towards is the idea of, of perfection as it relates to us. What would the perfect human look like? And why is it that when I ask that question, oftentimes it's physical things that pop first into our mind and not character things? What, what does perfection look like? It was interesting in our Bible reading plan just today in Ezekiel. God tells the prophet Ezekiel, even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were here right now, their righteousness would only cover their own sinfulness and could not cover anyone else's. Three individuals from antiquity are used as examples of what righteousness looks like, and they are not even perfect. What does perfection look like? Our society is attempting to get there. They are trying to create a perfect society. And one of the main ways they're attempting to do that is through affirmation. Whatever anybody comes up with, we'll just affirm them in that. With the lack of a standard of what perfection is, we're not even sure what goal we're working towards. And so we substitute an objective goal for a subjective one and say a perfect world would be where nobody says anything negative towards me. That'd be a perfect world where I could just do whatever I want, say whatever I want, be whoever I want, and everybody around me just says, you're awesome. Is that perfection? I think the state of our society would show that that is perhaps not a proper goal nor definition of what perfection is. We find in Psalm 110 a description of what perfection looks like. The Messiah, the chosen one of God who is going to come and be perfection for his people. And though those that read this did not know it then or did not see it then, would sacrifice himself for the failings and sinfulness of his people so that he was treated as if he had committed their sin. And they were treated as if they had fulfilled his righteousness. Now that's good news indeed. And that is the gospel. So follow along with me if you would. Psalm 110, seven verses before us this morning. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. 
He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. And so first this morning, let's walk through the psalm and get this portrait of who the Messiah is going to be. And what's interesting is, as typical of Hebrew poetry, there is a great deal of structure and form here. What you may have noticed or may not have noticed, and I'll point that out to you just now, is that verses 1 and 5 match up. They're very, very similar, similar themes, similar language. Verse 2 and verse 6 and verse 3 and verse 7. And these couplets, these pairing of verses, sort of parallel each other. They give us a little bit of new information, but they have similar ideas. And the key verse, the, the, the pivot verse in this psalm is verse 4. And so let's walk through these then in order, this, this portion of who the Messiah is going to be. So verse 1 and 5, let us know that in the first place, Messiah is going to be a triumphant warrior. This was the picture in Second Temple Judaism of who the Messiah was going to be. And when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, this was the picture that first came into the mind of Israelites and even Jesus' disciples. The idea of a triumphant warrior. Notice some of the language. Until I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This idea of a warrior, that no one is stronger than this one. The Messiah will be the ultimate soldier. No one will be stronger than the Messiah. No one will be able to defeat the Messiah. The Messiah will have all power and all strength. He will always win. We do all kinds of competitions and different things, and the outcome is not prearranged, preordained. We could win or we could lose, but this one will never lose. He always wins. He is triumphant in his battles. He has God himself at his side. Sit at my right hand, God says to the Messiah. And in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand, right there, ready to assist. So not only does the Messiah have his own strength, he has the strength of God himself in all of his endeavors. What a mighty one this must be, this triumphant warrior. Notice in the second place, the Messiah is also going to be a powerful ruler. He is not just a soldier, but he is a settled monarch, one who's going to rule in a lengthy way, in a long reign, and in a powerful fashion. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will shatter chiefs. This one is not going to be knocked off his throne. We just lost our previous monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, after a reign of 70 years. But this one is going to reign forever. No one will depose this king. All of his enemies will fall before him, and he will rule well and powerfully. And this, again, is the picture that the Israelites had and certainly the picture of the, of the Jews. Remember the disciples, what do they say to Jesus? So Jesus, yeah, yeah, you're going to be crucified, sure. But who gets to sit at your right hand when you bring in the kingdom? When you beat all the Romans and set up your kingdom, we've got the inside track. Who's going to be with you there in the throne room? Their idea of Jesus as Messiah, and we just sang Jesus Messiah, is this king, this warrior. This is the picture that comes out. And then verses 3 and 7, this couplet 
leads us to see that Messiah is charismatically energetic. Well, this was the most difficult point that I had to find a phrase for. Because this is very difficult Hebrew. Verse 3, there's a lot of ambiguity in the Hebrew. It's not clear what it's talking about there. But in verse 3, it seems to say that as the dew of the morning, which was here when we arrived this morning, some of us, that there is that refreshment to replenish the energy of Messiah. In verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. You recall in Judges 7 where um, Samson is thirsty after destroying a number of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey and God actually opens up a spring of water in that jawbone and he drinks it and he's refreshed. His eyes light up or uh, uh, Solomon on, not Solomon, sorry, Jonathan on the day of battle where he goes out against the Philistines and he's tired after a full day of fighting and dips his spear in some honey and and, and the the, the text is his eyes brighten. He got a caffeine rush. It's like many of you this morning with your first cup of coffee. That's what sort of, it opened up his eyes is, is the idea there. And, and that's kind of part of the idea here in this text that there'll be a never-ending energy that the Messiah will have. He doesn't get fatigued or tired. He's, he's always refreshed and revived. But notice the charismatic part of it in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. People will follow this person. And we see examples of that even in our own day. Charismatic leaders that people follow, and they follow to their own destruction in some cases and detriment. But the charisma is there, and they get behind this person, and they just want to do whatever they can to be on their team and to be a part of what's going on. And this is what Messiah is going to be like. He's charismatically energetic. And up to this point in the psalm, this would be most Jews, if not exclusively the Jewish idea of the Messiah before Jesus. And yet we have missed verse 4, which is arguably the most important verse in the psalm. Jesus, Messiah, is not just going to be a fearsome, triumphant warrior. He's not just going to be a powerful, undefeatable king. He's not just going to be charismatically enthusiastic and energetic, zealous. He's going to be a superior priest. Notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is unique because the king and the priest were very different roles. And in fact, some kings that attempted to do priestly things were judged and judged quite harshly by God for mixing those roles. The priest was a separate role. As we've seen in the book of the priest, Leviticus is walking through, the priests were the ones that represented the people before God. Cleanliness in a scriptural sense was very important, vitally important. And all of the different realities of coming into the presence of God. That was not a kingly function, that was a priestly function. And yet Messiah is going to be both king and priest. And as we're going to see in our walk through the book of Hebrews, this priest offers a sacrifice that is actually himself. So Jesus is the sacrifice and the one offering the sacrifice and the one to whom the sacrifice is being offered. An amazing reality here. But this priest is not a priest from the line of Aaron. He's not one of the Levites. He's a priest like Melchizedek. And we'll get into that more as we get into the book of Hebrews because the author of Hebrews makes a lot of parallels to the one to whom Abraham gave tithes after battle. And perhaps because David is writing this psalm, 
as he thinks about the taking of Jebus or Salem. Perhaps he's thinking of Melchizedek as the priest of Salem, Jerusalem, and that is the city that David made his city, built his palace, attempted to build the, um, the temple to God, but Solomon would do that instead. All in Jerusalem. Maybe this is in David's mind. This, this linkage to Melchizedek, but the Messiah is going to be one who's a superior priest, who's going to make offerings on behalf of his people, and as we know, he's actually going to offer himself on behalf of his people. This is the primary function that Jesus had when he came the first time, and it was almost entirely missed by those who were here for that first advent. Quickly then, let's go to this portrait of the Messiah and revisit it, because there's at least four things from this text that we may have missed upon first reading. This is sort of coming back out of the text, the 10,000 foot level, to see what else might be here. In the first place, we see that Messiah is also divine. Jesus himself in Mark 12, as well as some of the other Gospels, uses this passage, Psalm 110 verse 1, to prove his divinity to the religious leaders at the time. He asks them a question. Messiah, David's son, one of David's children or grandchildren, great-grandchildren in the line of David? Yes, everybody believed that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, would be able to trace their lineage back to King David based on the promise that God made to him. So Jesus says, How then does David call Messiah his Lord? In verse 1. The Lord, all caps in your English Bible, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and Jesus' point is, how can David call one of his sons his Lord? Jesus says, therefore, the Messiah must be both a son of David and divine. And, of course, Jesus is the God-man. But the divinity of the Messiah was not readily seen by the Jews. And Jesus points it out and uses this passage to do so. Jesus is superior. Jesus is perfect because he is God and man. Notice that he is also going to be king, verses 1 to 3 and 5 to 7. Jesus matches this portfolio. And we know from the book of Revelation and other places, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he comes as the conquering king. Out of his mouth comes the sword to slay his enemies in Revelation 14 and other places. Jesus is a king, and he allowed his disciples a little glimpse on the Mount of Transfiguration. You spend time with Jesus, you see the miracles, but there's a, a, a sense in which he might just be like us, only just like us. We hang out with Jesus, we eat with Jesus, we see Jesus a lot. Is he really different? And Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus peels back a little bit and reveals a part of his glory pre-incarnation. And all three of those men fall on their faces in awe of who Jesus is. Don't forget who Jesus is. I love the description. I've mentioned this many times before, but in uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, the Pevensey children, at least three of them, are speaking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're asking about this Aslan, this lion. And the, I believe it's Mrs. Beaver that says, Yes, he's a lion. He's a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. Jesus is not to be trifled with. Oftentimes we have this picture of Jesus as our buddy, our friend, somebody we go for coffee with, an equal. 
sort of a hippie, kind of just loves everybody. He's a bit of a guru. Just sort of walks around in a robe, barefoot, blesses everybody. He's a really nice guy. And Jesus is the embodiment of love, but because of that, he is also wrath. Because with the zeal with which Jesus loves that which is holy, he hates that which is not holy. And we forget that to our peril. Jesus is divine. Jesus is king. Jesus also is a unique priest, verse 4. We know this in the book of Hebrews. It extrapolates this and sort of expands on this much. And we'll get into that next year, Lord willing. This gospel fulfillment that Jesus Christ is a superior priest, superior to Aaron, superior to the Levites, superior to the whole system that we're learning about in the book of Leviticus. Jesus is better than all of that because he is a priest after Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest, a perfect priest. His sacrifice was once for all, does not need to be repeated. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect Messiah to perfectly and completely take care of our sins. But notice, if you would, in the fourth place, Jesus is returning. Messiah is coming, and in our context, coming back. Notice the language, until I make your enemies your footstool. He will offer himself freely on the day of your power. Verse 5, he will shatter kings. He will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook. He will lift up his head. I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you're a bit discouraged. I mentioned perfection, and you instantly realize just how far away you are from that, as we all are. It's a hard thing to sort of wrap our minds around, and so we settle for comparison. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot more perfect than that person. But when we actually look at perfection, we can be despairing. But understand that Jesus has come, has paid the penalty for your sin and mine, perfectly, and he is coming back. He will return. His promises are sure. We have hope in those promises. Because our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And so what is our response then this morning? Our response is that Jesus is superior to everything. He is superior to our best efforts. He's superior to the best person that we know. He's superior to our best character qualities. He's superior to any of our ideologies. He's superior to any of man's wisdom. He's superior to money. He's superior to fame. He's superior to anything that we can come up with to treasure more than him. Jesus is better than all of those things. He is infinitely better than all of those things. And so as with those to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing, sometimes we can get distracted and we can settle for less. And the writer of this psalm and the writer of the book of Hebrews would remind us Don't settle for anything other than Jesus Christ the righteous. You are not perfect, but He is. Submit to Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. He is infinitely and eternally worth it. Jesus Christ is Messiah and is superior to everything. I want to close just with a few things. We did lose our queen this week. I just want to read a quote from her. Christ lived obscurely for most of his life, 
and never traveled far. He was maligned and rejected by many, though he had done no wrong. And yet, billions of people now follow his teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them. Queen Elizabeth II. I am not sure of Elizabeth's relationship with God, but from all indications she had one with him through Christ. And with her passing, there is a passing of an era. And yet I want to read something from a fellow pastor friend of mine from Ontario. He says, She, Queen Elizabeth II, worked faithfully to secure a better future for her people. Christ worked flawlessly in securing our future as his people. Even someone as great and stable and steady as Queen Elizabeth II pales in comparison to Jesus Christ the righteous. And we can thank him this morning that he has worked perfectly and flawlessly on our behalf so we can be all that we were created to be for his glory and his glory alone. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, again, as we gather here on this beautiful day and thank you for your creation and for your creativity and imagination, for life, for everything that comes at your hand. Father, we understand that the way things are, even on a day such as this, are not perfect. There is conflict and strife. There is jealousy and pain. There is sin and suffering. There is war. There are so many things that are rightly called evil. And yet, Father, you have a perfect plan for a perfect future. And when the time was perfect, you sent your perfect Son to live perfectly, to model for us perfection, to offer a perfect sacrifice that was accepted by you, to raise to life again from the dead, from the grave, and to secure for us a perfect future and to give us hope of perfection even in this life. Father, you are perfect, and we thank you for that. We thank you most of all for your love for individuals such as ourselves who are not perfect. What a blessing it is to know that we are loved by you. We thank you for that this morning, and Father, we pray that in all of our lives we would look to Christ and Christ alone for perfection. That if anyone is here this morning and is looking to their own perfection, may they realize how futile that pursuit and that reality is. None of us are perfect. So Father, help them even this morning to submit to your perfection to submit in repentance of their sinfulness to the only one who can save, Jesus Christ the righteous, and to begin to follow Him in obedience. Father, for those of us that do believe in Christ and have a relationship with You through Him by Your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would look to Your perfection and not our own. Keep us from comparison and drive us to humility and gratitude. Help us to be thankful for Christ's perfection on our behalf. And rather than comparing our lack of perfection with other people's lack of perfection, may rejoice in Christ's perfection 
And Father, that may that cause us to be humble and gracious, generous, good, compassionate, kind, truthful, holy, righteous, loving. All these things that match who you are, Father. We pray that that would be the case in our lives this week and always. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.